Greetings and salutations. This is the Accelerated Culture Podcast, the rise of alternative music in the 80s and beyond. In this podcast, we aim to walk through an often ignored bit of music history. My co-host Trey and I will explore how new waves stormed the airwaves in the early 80s and gave way to the rise of alternative music. Welcome to the Accelerated Culture Podcast. I'm Trey. And I'm Lori. We have some exciting and some sad news this week. Yeah, so we'll start with the exciting news, Trey. Happy one-year anniversary, my friend. So weird to me. That we've been doing this podcast for a year? How many episodes? Say, I'm such a poor podcast host. How many episodes do we have? This is episode 24. Wow. Now, remember, we put out one or two little mini episodes, too, that are not being counted there. And it all started with Duran Duran. And it all started with Duran Duran. Yes, it did. So, yeah, August 13th, 2022 was our first episode. We'd like to thank everybody who's been with us along this journey. And if you're new, welcome. Seems to be about 50 people who listen every week from what I can see, unless it's, you know, you guys say something to us. I would love to talk to some of you guys. Message account. You see me commenting as myself on the Facebook page. Reach out to me. I would love to talk to some of you, really. Hit us up on Facebook. Hit us up on Twitter. So that's about the only happy news that I have right now because uh, this is going to be a rather somber episode, I'm afraid. As our listeners know, we mentioned at the end of the last episode, we lost Sinead O'Connor. On July, oh boy, 26th. It caught me off guard. I oh, just yeah, wasn't expecting it. And you know, I got an odd thing with that here. Yeah. Around the same time I first heard her, I got into Skinny Puppy. And so I saw Kevin Key of Skinny Puppy post about it on Facebook. And that's how I heard about it. And I was just like, how weird is that? Well, and then you messaged me, and I was in a meeting, and I was just completely beside myself this is one celebrity death that has just really hit me hard i mean much harder than i was expecting and even trying to write this episode trey it's taken me a lot longer than usual because i had to keep taking a break and stepping away from it because i found myself just getting very overwhelmed with emotion it was just so surprising i i know she'd had some mental problems over the years, but I just wasn't expecting to see that. Yeah. Really thought she'd gotten herself together, which is what, you know, what the word was. Well, the fact is, we don't know what her cause of death is. Right. And you were the one that reminded me, Trey. I mean, we can speculate. Started getting irritated with some of these people on social media saying, eh, it most likely was a suicide, but we don't know yet. And I don't believe she was into drugs, was she? Nothing harder than marijuana. Right, so... And she didn't drink either. She absolutely hated alcohol because it made her so sick. And the coroner requested a further further look because he was puzzled by what killed her, apparently, so... 
Okay. Well, it'll be interesting to see what that is when it comes out. But yeah, so we hadn't originally planned to do an album deep dive on The Lion and the Cobra, which was Sinead's 1987 debut album. But when this came about, Trey, you and I had a little chat and we realized we're still in 1987 as far as the podcast is concerned. So are we? Yeah. Oh, okay. Pandemic. So this seemed like a, a fitting tribute. So, Trey, when we did the Cure episode, that's really your band, your area of expertise. So right. I didn't know a whole lot about them, and so I really kind of stepped back and let you do a lot of the talking. And I suspect that the inverse is going to be true for this episode. Yeah, and I, I told you. I suspect that I'm going to do a lot of the talking here. Mm-hmm. And I told you that. I said this is going to be a Lori-centric episode because, you know, this this is all you. I won't be saying much tonight. Well, hopefully this is not so much a Lori-centric episode as a Sinead O'Connor-centric episode. I, I got a few things that throw in there, here or there. All right. Well, before we get into the album, I'd like to talk a little bit about who she was. And I think it's really kind of important to understand her background and her upbringing. I think that really helps us put a lot of her behaviors into perspective. So uh, most of this information that I've gathered is coming from a few sources. Number one, there's a documentary film, which is just amazing. It's on Showtime right now uh, on demand called Nothing Compares. And then her 2021 memoir, which was called Rememberings. Most of the information I'm getting is from those two sources. However, I have supplemented it here and there with various magazine articles and interviews and such. So, shall we begin? Oh. All right. Sinead Marie Bernadette O'Connor was born on December 8th, 1966, the third of four children to an Irish Catholic couple, John and Joanna O'Connor. Her eldest brother, Joe O'Connor, is a novelist who is best known for writing The Star of the Sea. Her father was a barrister, and her mother had been a dressmaker before she got married. Now, according to Sinead, in Ireland, you can't work anymore if you're a married woman. She's speaking of 1966. That's not necessarily the case now. But there were a lot of things in terms of the expectations of gender roles that are really going to play into this history. Sinead's mother was extremely physically abusive to all the children, but it seems like the two girls got it the worst. She makes me say I am nothing over and over, and if I don't, she won't stop stomping on me. She says she wants to burst my womb. She makes me beg her for mercy. Now, the nuns at her school would ask her about the welts on her legs and the black eyes, but being a frightened child, Sinead denied that it was her mother. Now, her father left her mother when she was eight, but for reasons that are unclear, the children stayed behind with their mother, and the beatings would continue. We did anything to stay out, because only battering would happen at home. Some nights we just rode the bus from the first stop to the last and back, in the hope that mother would be asleep when we got home. She recounted being stripped naked and beaten on the arms, legs, and genitals with a broomstick. I have to pretend I lost my field hockey stick because I know my mother will hit me with it all summer if I bring it home. Now, in the documentary Nothing Compares, she recounted 
My mother was a beast, and I was able to soothe her with my voice. One of the songs that she used to sing to calm her mother was Don't Cry For Me, Argentina. Don't cry for me, Argentina The truth is I never left you All through my wild days, my mad existence I kept my promise, don't keep your distance Let me say, I had no idea she had been severely abused as a child like that. I don't know how that escaped me over the years, but I wasn't aware. That's terrible. I mean, I felt bad when you were reading all that. And we'll see when we talk about some of the songs on The Lion and the Cobra that some of the abuse actually did come out in the songs. She did have one solace, however, and that was music. When she was 11, her brother Joe played the Bob Dylan album Slow Train Coming for her, which completely changed her life and made her want to become a musician. Now, she also was a big fan growing up of John Lennon and Elvis. Slow Train Coming was Dylan's first album since he converted to Christianity, and the album was full of references to God and religion. Religion was always at the forefront of Sinead's mind, being a young Irish Catholic girl. And from a young age, she threw herself into studying the Bible to try to understand. Why were my grandparents so miserable that they couldn't have a kiss without feeling like they were going to burn in hell? I believed it all, and I was trying to live it. So in late 60s, early 70s Ireland, the church controlled every aspect of life. Divorce and birth control were illegal because the church had forbidden them. As a matter of fact, a law allowing legal separation from your spouse passed in 1989, but divorce did not become legal in Ireland until 1996, Trey. Are you really? Yes. So That's mind-blowing. If the church was against it, it was illegal. And that was also true of abortion, which we're also going to talk about because Sinead was a very big pro-choice advocate. I was aware of that. She was very vocal about that. Yes. So in 1979, when Sinead was 13, her older brother Joe left home. She took me in the car with her. Joe got in and told her he wasn't ever coming home. She told him if he didn't, she would put me in the passenger seat of the car and drive into oncoming traffic in order to hurt me and force him to come back. He didn't believe her, and he got out of the car and walked away. Then she did it, put me in the passenger seat, and deliberately smashed into a car that was coming the other way. Luckily, we were both okay, but I did scream at her. After this, Sinead's mother was hospitalized for psychiatric reasons, and Sinead went to live with her father. Now, this was really hard for Sinead and the other children because they had been told by their mother that her father wanted nothing to do with them, and they resented him for that. However, the truth was that he was trying to see his children, but Sinead's mother kept him away from them. Sinead and her sister lived with their father for about a year and a half, but they missed their mother, and eventually they moved back with her. 
Her mother had taught Sinead to steal from the collection plate at church, and her mother seemed happiest when Sinead brought home money. So Sinead started stealing everything she could. People's lunches, shoplifting from a dress shop, stealing money from teachers' handbags in the staff room. She ended up being branded a problem child due to stealing and truancy, and at age 14, she was sent away to a facility called Angrinan, which is Gaelic for the sunrise. And this was a residential home run by nuns. Many of the other residents at Angrinan were the so-called Magdalene girls. Are you familiar with this concept, Trey, with like the Magdalene laundries? I am not. What was a very common practice in Ireland is that unwed mothers some of them rape victims, were locked away in these Magdalene laundries. Okay. Uh, they, would get, they would give birth. They would not be allowed to see their children. In some cases, the children were given away. But it was considered a mark of shame. And so basically, they were sequestered, some of them for decades. Sinead said she met these women at their most vulnerable. And one night, as a punishment... One of the nuns forced Sinead to sleep in a ward with the elderly patients. And she was horrified because she had to listen all night to women confined to bed, screaming out in pain for nurses who never came. And that really shook her to the core. Now, there was a guitar teacher at Angrinan named Jeanette Byrne. Sinead said, if not for her, I wouldn't have made it through that place. The teacher was just stunned by Sinead's voice and wanted to encourage her to develop her talent. So Jeanette invited Sinead to sing at the guitar teacher's wedding. Now, at this wedding, she met the teacher's brother, Paul Byrne. And Paul was forming a band called Intuanua. He said her voice, quote, stopped me in my tracks. He invited her to join the band as a vocalist. And the first song she wrote was called Take My Hand, which was inspired by her time at the residential home. She started busking, and at age 18, she put an ad in Hot Press magazine looking for singing gigs. A man named Colm Farrelly responded to her ad and invited her to join the band Tan Tan Makut. Now that's named after the Haitian secret police. While she was singing with Tan Tan Makut, she was discovered by Nigel Grange and Chris Hill from Ensign Records. They invited her to come to London to cut a demo with Carl Wallinger of the Waterboys and later World Party. So she demoed four songs with Carl, and three of the four songs would make it onto her first album. How we doing? This is it's interesting. No, I'm listening. Don't think I'm ignoring you. This is all interesting. I didn't know she had such a horror. It makes it it makes you we we're lucky. We are some lucky motherfuckers over here. That is just nuts. Yeah. While she was in London, she met the manager of the Boomtown Rats, Fakhtna O'Kelly. He became Sinead's manager. And while she was in London, he also introduced her to Jamaican music. 
she was spending a lot of time with artists of DBC, that stands for Dread Broadcasting Corporation. And she absolutely fell in love with the Rasta scene. I think that she identified with Rasta culture because they are extremely religious and the Rastas really kind of took her under their wing. They used to refer to her as little sister. Here, I'd like to play a little bit of Sinead singing Prophet Has Arise, which is a reggae song. Ja Prophet Has Arise He's got a dread look in his eye Dread look in his eye Ja Prophet Has While all this was taking place, on February 10th, 1985, Sinead was 18. She received word that her mother had died at age 45 in a car accident after losing control of her car on an icy road in Ballybrack and crashing into a bus. I was aware of this. Okay, and that's a little bit ironic considering the previous episode where she had threatened to drive headfirst into traffic with Sinead. Many people that she hadn't seen for years showed up at her mother's funeral and they all expressed their condolences and this made Sinead so angry. She was like, you're sorry? Sorry for what? And where were you? Where were you when all this was going on? So she was rightfully angry. This is the emotional environment that she's in as she starts to record the lion and the cobra so she's not in a great headspace not in a good frame of mind right and ensign records started trying to change her image she had very cute short brown hair and she dressed a little bit butch but they wanted her to grow her hair out and wear short skirts and be more traditionally feminine. Now, in response to this, her manager, O'Kelly, suggested she should shave her head. And so she did. That was her way of sticking her thumb in the eye of the record executives. You know, that kind of aligns with that my surmise of the album. Remember what I said? Remind me. Remember, you, you can kind of see and the way it's mixed in the songs that they, they weren't sure which way it was going to go. I didn't know how to market her. Yes, I do remember you saying that. They had her skewed. It, it could go towards the alternative market, but it also could have been very pop friendly, and they had enough on there for each way. I, I think you're right. I think they didn't know how to market her. And I'm not saying that to say it's a bad album. It's a terrific album, but you can hear them, you know, choosing a marketing direction in there. Ensign Records spent £100,000 in recording and production of her album, and she was absolutely not happy with the producer that they chose. 
So she bought a home recording device and a microphone. And at home, she was practicing, not just singing, but modulating her voice, looking to see when she's singing loudly, making sure that it doesn't go into the red, when she's singing softly, making sure it doesn't drop too low. Uh, I've never heard of an artist doing this before. So I need to be sure every word or end of word I sing in a whisper is going to get heard because the producer just pulls me down to some random level in the mix and leaves me there. The whispered words get lost and I didn't write them for nothing. So I've made my voice into its own master fader. I've never heard of an artist being that dedicated that they're training themselves with their voice to get these vocal ranges. That was amazing to me. It's pretty interesting. Yeah. So as I mentioned, Ensign Records spent 100,000 pounds on recording her album, but she wasn't happy with it at all. But she was also afraid of alienating Grange and Hill from Ensign Records. So she didn't want to say anything. Now, while she was recording The Lion and the Cobra, she started an affair with her drummer, John Reynolds. And she discovered one day when she was singing that she was having trouble hitting one of the high notes. That's how she found out that she was pregnant. Grange and Hill wanted her to have an abortion. They had her doctor speak to her, and the doctor said, Your record company has spent £100,000 recording your album. You owe it to them not to have this baby. I haven't cried so much in years. Nigel could shove his 100000 and his producer. I'm starting again. So she scrapped the album and completely started over, and she kept the baby. Is that out there anywhere, the original version of it? No, I don't think it is. You know, not even a bootleg or, you know. It might be out there somewhere, and maybe now that she's gone, maybe some of that will come to light, but I kind of hope that it doesn't because she was not happy with it. It didn't represent her art. It didn't represent her vision. It was the record company's idea of who she should be. So I kind of hope that it doesn't get released, you know? Now, besides John Reynolds on drums, they brought in some familiar faces on this album. Marco Peroni on guitar. Marco, we know most famously from Adam and the Ants. Rob Dean on guitar from the band Japan. Mike Clois on synth and keyboard. Richard Spike Hollifield on bass guitar. And Kevin Mooney, another former member of Adam and the Ants on guitar and bass guitar. The title of the album is from Psalm 91, verse 13. You will tread upon the lion and the cobra. You will trample the great lion and the serpent. The photograph of Sinead on the cover of the album was taken by Kate Garner from the band Hazy Fantasy. I didn't know that. Sinead was extremely pregnant at the time of the photo shoot. And Kate played some of Sinead's music and basically just encouraged her to mess around and have fun. The picture that was originally used for the album cover, Sinead is actually singing along to one of the songs with her arms crossed in front of her chest, but it looks like she is screaming. It looks like she is angry. 
in the United States and Canada, they decided not to go with that album cover because they thought that having an angry-looking woman with a shaved head would put people off. So the album cover in the U.S. and Canada was her looking more demure, looking down, but they were both from the same photo shoot. Her son, Jake, was born on June 16, 1987, and then the album The Lion and the Cobra was released a month before Sinead's 21st birthday on November 4, 1987, on Chrysalis Records, Ensign's parent company. The album charted worldwide, reaching number 27 in the United Kingdom and number 36 on the U.S. Billboard 200. I didn't realize they got that high on the charts. Yeah, I was kind of surprised, too. I, I didn't think that it had gotten that high. I know MTV had put up Mandinka and the Busbin and all that, which is how I caught Wendover. Yes, that was big on 120 Minutes. And that's pretty impressive. Now, the sad thing about this tray is she did not like to be in the spotlight. She did not like being a pop star. That was never the goal for her. As a matter of fact, when she was first signed to Ensign Records, lawyers were telling her this is a really low offer, but she accepted it immediately because she thought to herself, when am I ever going to get the chance to get paid money to do what I love to do? So for her, it was always about having the ability to make more art and to be able to support herself. She never wanted the trappings of fame. And I, we're going to kind of see, especially around 1990, 91, 92, it kind of takes its toll on her a little bit. As far as her discography is concerned, Shaneda said, every album represents a diary and each song is a chapter in that diary. And my collection of albums represents my healing journey. So this is the first album. This is the first step in her healing journey. And we're going to kind of take it song by song and read those chapters in this diary. Sound good? Sounds good to me. All right. All right. Up first, we have the track Jackie, which is sort of just a little album opener type thing, I would say. the story behind this i do not i know i know you do okay so let's hear it well i i guess it was inspired by some scottish drama that she saw on tv she wrote the song when she was 15 and if you listen to the lyrics tray it's a ghost story told from the perspective of a woman whose husband jackie went missing at sea her spirit still haunts the shore awaiting her lover's return there's so many good lyrics in this this whole album, but 
I love the the part of the song where she's singing, you're all wrong, I said, and they stared at the sand. That man knows that sea like the back of his hand. He'll be back sometime laughing at you. So she's pining away and and eventually dies. And, and there's this line, I've been dead for 20 years, but she's still searching the shore for a sign of Jackie to come back. It's a beautiful, haunting, haunting song. Reminds me of the whole sort of an urban legend ghost stories. It goes around on several areas in the U.S. And I know in Europe about the woman whose husband was killed in a shipwreck. And so her ghost haunts the shores looking for her husband to come home. You ever heard that one? I have not, but that it sounds exactly like what the song is about, yeah. There's an episode of Unsolved Mysteries that covers a tale like that even. Oh. You know what? When I was listening to this, it made me think of something Jack London would have wrote. I could see it. Death, or specifically what happens after death, is a recurring theme in many of Sinead's songs. In fact, that first song that she wrote for the band Into Anua, Take My Hand, was actually from the perspective of an angel singing to a dying man, Take My Hand, you know, it's time. But man, her her voice though, there is something so powerfully haunting about her voice. And you can hear, especially towards the end of the song, you can hear the pain that's coming through, you know, the, the longing and, and the despair. That was something that she could do better than anybody as far as her voice was concerned. She didn't have quite a range. Yes. Her voice still gives me the chills. All right. The next track, Trey, we've talked about before on this podcast, and that is Mandinka. It was the second single off the album. It was released December 1st, 1987. thing I said the first time I ever heard this song was my girlfriend in high school she hears a silver remember this when I went the fuck is a mandinka and now we know that it's a tribe in Africa right she knew it right then I was like what how in the hell do you you know how do you know that she was a bit smarter than me and and taking advanced classes and you know gotcha well (laughs) so we did talk about this in an episode just a few weeks ago. And Sinead had said that this was inspired by Alex Haley's book, Roots. Yes, it's about 
the Mandinka. It's about roots, but it's really more at its core. It's about a woman who is rebelling against cultural norms that are being forced on her from without, from outside. She performed this song at the Grammys on February 22nd, 1989, where she was nominated for Best Rock Vocal Performance. Now, this was a bit of a controversial appearance. She was wearing Doc Martens, baggy jeans, and one of Baby Jake's sleep suits knotted through the back belt loops. She also had the logo of the rap group Public Enemy painted on the side of her shaved head. Now, this was an act of protest. Although the Grammys had added their first ever Best Rap Performance category, they refused to air the award on television. I remember all this. Yes. This was kind of her way of giving the Grammys the middle finger, but also representing Black music and Black culture, which I thought was really cool. The other thing about that Grammy performance, that sleep suit of her son's, that she wore through her belt loops, that was also her kind of giving a f- the middle finger to Ensign Records because, remember, they wanted her to have an abortion. Yeah. And she later left that sleep suit at her mother's grave. Wow. Which was, number one, a way of involving her mother in the Grammys, but also introducing her mother to her son because, you know, they, they obviously never would have met. And... According to Sinead, as recently as 2021, the sleep suit was still there at her mother's grave. It had become yellowed and dirty, but it was still there. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. Do you want to take the next track? Up next, we have the track Jerusalem. This is where the album kind of just takes a sharp turn all of a sudden. This is a good one. So this was written by Sinead with Ali McMorty from the band Stiff Little Fingers and Mike Clois and John Reynolds. Tell me your thoughts on this one before I start pontificating. Uh, it almost has a shoegaze feel to it to me. Uh, you know, yeah, for, for you listeners out there, I, I don't think I'd heard this album since about 1988, maybe. So it was almost like hearing it for the first time, you know. And I went back over the weekend and gave it a listen in light of her passing. Yeah. So, you know, I really didn't know a lot about this song, but I found an article in a music magazine by someone named Rachel Sage Payne who explained that Jerusalem is an anthem to living in a body that can feel like a war zone. So the holy city of Jerusalem is kind of a a metaphor, if you will, for the woman's body. And she wrote, O'Connor directs her holy anger 
at an unenviable lover, capturing experiences of verbal abuse and gaslighting with a twinge of addiction, all while refusing to lie down and be a victim, O'Connor understood from the beginning that her body was political. I thought that was really, really interesting. And when we talk about the body being political, this is as good a place as any, I think, to talk about abortion rights. Because as you had mentioned, Trey, and I had mentioned as well, she was a fierce, fierce pro-choice advocate. There had been, I'm sorry, I don't remember what year it was, but I do remember there was a situation where there was a 14-year-old girl in Ireland who had been raped and was pregnant. And because abortion was illegal in Ireland, uh, they wanted to send her to England to be able to get an abortion because she shouldn't be forced to carry her rapist baby. And Sinead was right there with the other marchers speaking out that this is that this should be her choice. Sinead also was very open about the fact that she had had an abortion. Now, this was after Jake was born. It was about 1990. Now, she doesn't specifically say who the father was, but if you look at the timing, it was most likely John Reynolds because she said in interviews that it had been a planned pregnancy, but then she'd had a falling out with the father and he was no longer going to be around and she did not feel that she could raise two children on the road by herself without support so she felt that that was the right decision for her and she was very very unapologetic about it that you know this was her choice to make I, I felt that that was really, really important and really profound, especially for a Catholic girl in Ireland, you know, that they don't have that kind of bodily autonomy. You know, birth control was illegal. Abortion was illegal. Divorce was illegal. And so when the author said that she understood from the beginning that her body was political, this is the kind of thing that she needs. You know, it's unfortunate, but even now in 2023, as women, our bodies are a political battleground, whether we like it or not. Yeah, indeed they are, especially lately. Yes. Up next we have, just like you said it would be, And I wondered, is, uh, 
you know, that sounds like something Prince would have wrote. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because there was a guy I used to be friends with who was trying to convince me back in the early 90s that Prince did write this song. Eric Ventura, you're fucking wrong. Okay. Yeah, and then Prince definitely did not write this. It no, just the, the no. way it's written. So I wonder if she takes some influence from Prince and that's so. Uh, you mean as far as the letter U and the letter yeah, V? Yeah, the way he. Yeah. Yeah. Which is interesting because now that's text message speak. We write like that all the time. But the song itself was co-written with Steve Wickham of Into Anua, her former band. And it was one of the original four demos that she recorded with Carl Wallinger. Now, obviously, this isn't the demo version. This is a different version. Mm -hmm. I always loved this song. I think it has an almost kind of madrigal sound to it. It's just so so sweet i mean it's it's a it's a beautiful love song when i lay down my head at the end of my day nothing would please me better than to find that you're there when i wake i mean that's so gorgeous you know i definitely had this one sort of top 40 skewed you think so oh yeah now that's interesting because i don't remember hearing anything like this in the top 40 this this to me, it, it seems like it, you from know, another another century almost. You you got to think when this album came out, this when this type of music was really gaining steam. So you know they were trying, definitely trying to make some of it more accessible to a some of you might like what was going on on the radio already. Huh. I can't think of anything in 87 that's on the radio that's had any Well, I'm not saying like there this, was, but... but this was just definitely, it's, you know, I don't know how to explain it, the mix and everything. It, it's, this could have been a possible single. Let's put it that way. Okay. That made more sense. Yeah, I, I, I guess I could see it. So, as I mentioned, this is a love song. So let's talk about Sinead and love. And she was married four times. So she's got me beat. I've only been married three. <laughs> One of those marriages lasted only 16 days. She's had four children by four different fathers. And she's done fairly well as a single mother, all things considered, right? So there was Jake Reynolds, born in 1987. And he's the one that just unfortunately passed away, right? No. That's oh, Okay. Okay. Royce and Waters, her daughter, was born in 1996. The child's father ended up taking custody of her. Then we have Shane Lunny, who was born in 2004. Now, he's the one who passed away in January of 2022. And Yeshua Bonadio was born in 2006. So in her book, she was recounting a situation where she was traveling with all four of her children and the gate attendant at the airport was concerned because she was traveling with four children with four different last names and like she thought there was some kind of human trafficking situation going on oh there. wow and Sinead's response was basically no I'm just a slut <laughs> I was about to say she had to come down here to Georgia that's <laughs> commonplace ah well, you know, Heck, I know I've known of girls that are like 23 and have four kids. 
Well, it's interesting because I think she's really, she's taken a lot of flack for that. You know, I mean, four, four marriages, four children, but uh, at least two of those children were not two people that she was married with. And I think there's a lot of judgment there. You know, like when she said, yeah, I'm just a slut. I mean, yeah, she was very tongue in cheek about it, but that's kind of how she was branded. It is such a double standard. Oh, you know, totally. If a, woman, if a woman has children by different men, she's branded a slut. But then compare that to somebody like Nick Cannon, who has nine children by six different mothers. Yeah, I was going to say, some of these actors and stuff, they got 28 kids and still got them pouring out of the... Hey, you're my dad. Yes. You know. So, you know, again, this goes back to the idea of self-determinism, bodily autonomy. It is her decision and her decision alone whether to have a child or not. I agree. I, you know, I, like you were just saying, people look down on her. I, I could care less what she does. It's her life. I'm, it doesn't affect me. I don't, I'm not going to judge a poor woman for it. It's not something I would do, but hey. You know, she also had. I was very surprised to learn this, Trey. She had a uh, brief relationship with Peter Gabriel. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, I, I was hoping you were going to bring that up. I was like, what in the world? Peter's got around and bit himself. Oh my gosh, Peter Gabriel. <laughs> yeah, she want to talk about men. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, so I guess it was like about ninety two, ninety three. It was right around the time they recorded the duet "Blood of Eden." which is a beautiful song, by the way. If she had a flaw, and I, I, I mean, she had many flaws, but I think one of her biggest flaws is I think she just fell in love too easily. She really fell very hard for Peter, but it became apparent to her that she was just kind of his weekend fling. I was going to say, I've heard Peter's a bit of a jerk. I've heard that too. I don't, you know. I call Judge a man, but you know, you get on the internet, you can find some things out. So, on the subject of love and love songs, the next song on the album is called Never Get Old. features Enya. Yes. She had just had her first success in the U.S. That, what was it? Was it that summer? Well, she'd been in, in Clannad. Is that how you say it? Yeah, she had previous success overseas and she'd been in, I don't know how you say that band. I think you two had kind of gotten them some you know, out there a little yeah. and they failed. Well, so her debut album came out in 87 
March of 87. So, yeah, it was right okay, around yeah, this time. Okay, yeah, it was they summer were... of 87. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, okay. Mm-hmm. And I so got the memory. Yeah, so the very beginning of the song, which unfortunately we cut out because of time constraints, but if you go back and listen to it, it's gorgeous, and it's Enya reciting Psalm 91 from the Bible in Gaelic. And again, Psalm 91 is the one that references the lion and the cobra. Quite frankly, I think this is my favorite song, not just on the album, but I think maybe my favorite song that Sinead's ever done. This was another one of the original demos that she recorded, and she wrote this song at age 15. It's about the handsomest boy in school, Ben Johnson. All the girls wanted to go out with him because he was not only the best-looking boy, but also the most mysterious. He trained hawks and was really sweet and rarely said a thing. One day he took me to watch him and his hawk, and we had the most amazing afternoon. I think we eventually kissed once or twice, and then I got dumped, though it was done very nicely. I was probably a terrible kisser, but I was still quite upset, and that's where Never Get Old came from. So, you know, when I heard this, when when she says, you know, young man in a quiet place got a hawk on his arm, I think I assumed it was like a hawk tattoo, but no, it was an actual hawk. The kid was training hawks. Isn't that wild? Yeah, that, you know, that's interesting. I, I, I thought it was just pure fiction. Yeah, no, it's about a real boy. You know, I wonder, I wonder where Ben Johnson is now. I mean, because you know he had to hear that young man in a quiet place with a hawk on his arm, and he had to know that that was about him. So back to Psalm 91. Let's talk a little bit about religion, because religion was both a core part of who she was, but also, I think, for her, a source of inner conflict. She was always, I think, searching for something, you know, searching for some kind of spiritual fulfillment. I think it started at a very early age, being raised Irish Catholic and, you know, realizing the kind of hold, I think, that the Catholic Church had on her country and and her family and, you know, her, her upbringing. In 1999, she was ordained in the Latin Tridenti sect of the Catholic Church. Now, this is not an official sect. This was kind of a a rogue sect, I guess. They weren't recognized because the Catholic Church does not believe in the ordination of women. Right. But she she was ordained as Mother Bernadette Marie. And she said in an interview with RTE, a person shouldn't become a priest unless they take it dreadfully seriously. And there's pictures of her wearing the black frock and the priest's collar. The look really suits her. I'm not going to lie. It really suits her. But then about five years later, she declared herself a Rasta. She said she was following Rastafari, which she described as, quote, an anti-religious but massively pro-God spiritual movement. She said in an interview, I am one of those human beings who would not be alive today if it was not for the teachings of Rastafari. 
She actually recorded a reggae-inspired album in 2005, Throw Down Your Arms, and I played a little bit of one of her songs off that album earlier. I think she really identified with Rastafari because they were very religious, very spiritual, and very anti-papist and anti, I guess, the hierarchical structure of the church that she was raised in. I kind of wonder, though, what they thought of her shaved head, because the Rastas take very seriously the part in the Old Testament in Leviticus that says you do not cut your hair. So that's kind of an interesting contradiction. Yeah. And then most recently, in 2018, she converted to Islam and changed her name to Shuhada David. She still continued to use the name Sinead O'Connor professionally, though. And she did wear the hijab. She considered herself Muslim up until her death. And uh, actually, her imam spoke at her funeral just a few days ago. I find that very interesting and almost a little bit contradictory because it seems like it's just replacing one oppressive patriarchy with another. I was going to say, don't, 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 don't get me going on this because, yeah, you, you were not wrong at all. We'll just leave it at that. Yeah, but you know what? If that If that's ultimately where she found fulfillment and that's where she found spiritual peace then bless her. She's what I would call a seeker. You know, we all know people like this that are going to try this set of beliefs, going to try this set of beliefs, always looking for something outside of herself. And I think ultimately what she was looking for was just acceptance. I think she was looking for the place where she would fit in and where she would be accepted And I guess she found it in Islam. All right, do you want to take the next song? Up next, we have Troy, which is the lead-off single from the album. It's a great song. the single version was shortened quite a bit from the album version which runs almost seven minutes it's also worth noting this song had a resurgence in 2002 and a dance remix and actually charted i know it charted on the u.s dance charts really troy I think it was yeah i think it was a bigger hit in the, over in europe than it was here i that, i wasn't aware of that i knew you wouldn't be 
I somehow knew that was going to be the one thing that you missed. The 2002 dance version of the song was released as Troy the Phoenix in the Flame. Yeah. Oh, wow. No, I didn't know. It hit the top 10 on the U.S. dance charts. Number three. Wow. Okay. You remember that? Some TV show used it. I think it was a show Dead Like Me used it. And she's even performed it live. This song, oh my gosh, where to start? I mean, this song always gives me the chills. She's displaying this beautiful vocal range. I had no idea what the song was actually about. Me either. So it was about both her mother and about a 47-year-old married minister that she'd had an affair with when she was a teenager. He, it was one of those situations where he, you know, I guess the, the stereotypical married man, you know, uh, oh, my wife doesn't understand me. I'm planning to leave her. You know, she was a naive teenager. She didn't know any better. But the part that, oh, Trey, when I, when I saw this, when I saw this in the documentary, um, Nothing Compares, I cried because she talks about that beginning of the song, Dublin in a Rainstorm sitting in the long grass in summer, keeping warm. And she explained that when she was a child, one of the abuses that she endured from her mother was her mother would banish her out into the garden and that she would have to sleep out in the garden. I just can't even imagine how terrifying that had to be for a little child to be sleeping outside in in the rain and the weather. And she talked about looking up and seeing her mother's bedroom light on. You know, you should have left the light on. And, uh, oh my God, I mean, it's just absolutely horrific what she went through. I mean, quite frankly, a lot of people wouldn't have survived as long as she did. Yeah, that's insane. Yeah, yeah. So now when I hear the song, now I think of that, and it's just... It's it's hard. It's really hard. So, as I mentioned, her mother died in a car accident in 1985. Sinead and her siblings went to clean out her mother's home. And in her mother's home, on the wall, in the bedroom, was a photo, a framed photo, of Pope John Paul II. It was taken when he visited Ireland in 1979. Young people of Ireland, I love you. What a load of claptrap. Nobody loved us, not even God. Sure, even our mothers and fathers couldn't stand us. My intention had always been to destroy my mother's photo of the Pope. It represented lies and liars and abuse. The type of people who kept these things were devils like my mother. I never knew when or where or how I would destroy it, but destroy it I would when the right moment came. And with that in mind, I carefully brought it everywhere I lived from that day forward because nobody ever gave a shit about the children of Ireland. We're going to talk a little bit more about this photo of the Pope in a bit. It is quite an infamous incident, yes. Yes, so we are going to talk about that. I was going to say, it's weird to think back at seeing these videos in 120 minutes back as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old kid. Who knew that this was such a Deep fucking album. Yeah. God. Yeah. 
Well, Trey, the next song is one of your favorites, if I'm not mistaken. Yes, yes. I Want Your Hands On Me. My high school girlfriend used to sing this to me. Yeah. You know, get it. I mean, she would really do that. We we really liked the version with MC Light on it. And you know what? I'll be honest. That's the one I didn't like. So, really? Yeah, there was a, yeah, there was a 12-inch version for our listeners that was released with a little bit of a rap with MC Light. I preferred the album version. I, I didn't think that the rap added to it, but I do appreciate what she was doing. And in 1987, for a white singer to have a black guest rapper was still very unusual. And MC Light was pretty popular at the time, so they were definitely trying something to get Sinead more out there. They were trying to get her on Top 40 radio. Well, I think this is the closest to a radio-friendly single out of everything that's on the album. Right, and that's what they were going for, and it worked. Th- this was the third single of the album. It was released December 1st, 1987. Yeah. Most of the songs on this album were written by Sinead. This one was written by her with Mike Clois, John Reynolds, Rob Dean, Spike Hollifield. So this was really more of a collaborative effort with the uh, other band members. This song was also featured in an episode of Miami Vice, Yep. And in the closing credits for A Nightmare on Elm Street for The Dream Master. Yeah, which I found, I was like, really? I don't remember that. It's in the closing credits. I've seen that movie a gazillion times. I've never seen it. Don't start. Whenever I say I haven't seen a movie, Trey starts with his, Lori, I can't believe. But that's not <laughs> one that's like, you know, that's not like one that I would, you know. Yeah, as you had mentioned this was a huge smash on the dance charts and this was i think maybe her most commercially accessible song on this album i think i had the cassette maxi single remember those yes i do i do not a cassette single but a cassette 12 inch and for some reason they call it a maxi single they like usually had four songs on it right two on each side Mm -hmm, generally okay do you want to take the next song I do, and you, you're going to get mad at me. <laughs> Why? Because you don't have it? No, no. Up next, we have Drink Before the War.
and several of these albums we've talked about in the past couple of months, they just end with such snoozers of songs. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm trying to think what movie this was in. This was in a movie. Was it that thing with the, the about the IRA bomber that had U2 no. and Clonad and no. I think Enya in it as well? What is I, that movie? I've, I mean, I've never seen it. I've never seen it. So, but there was a movie that I did see that it was in. No, it wasn't say it. Or maybe it was a TV show. I got, was it an episode of Miami Vice? Because they would typically no. use two songs from an artist in an episode. No, this was something contemporary. All right, well, it'll it'll come to me anyway. All right. This is one of the first songs that she demoed with Carl Wallinger. And it was about a school headmaster. I demoed four songs with Carl, three of which eventually made it onto my first album, The Lion and the Cobra. The first was a song called Drink Before the War, which I'd written the previous year about my constipated headmaster who hated me making music and campaigned for my father not to let me take my guitar with me back to boarding school, despite the fact that all I could do was make music. He was an unmerciful snob. If you're going to make music, he whined down his pompous nose, you're going to spend the rest of your life going in the back door, pronouncing the last two words as if their literal meaning was dog shit. I know you don't like this song, Trey. I think it's a gorgeous song. It's, it's Again, it's not that I don't like it. Then Some of these albums just ended so blasé. Well, then I imagine you're probably not going to be a big fan of this next song either then, which not is really. Just Call Me Joe. another one that I really love this is the only cover song on the album it was performed by a band called Max Kevin Mooney and um, Leslie Weiner they had a band called Max so she contributed to this song she contributed to the songwriting so it's co-written by the three of them uh, and I don't think that the album was actually released so if you're out there looking for the song by Max I don't think you're going to find it but uh, Leslie Weiner actually did the spoken word vocals at the end of the song. We think this is just a really sweet, wholesome song. Don't call me baby, just call me Joe. You know, <laughs> I mean, I don't know. There's something about it that's just so sweet and so relatable. Speaking of names, 
So we had mentioned that she changed her name when she converted to Islam, but actually the second time she changed her name. In 2017, she changed her legal name to Magda David, saying in an interview that she wished to be, quote, free of the patriarchal slave names, free of the parental curses. And again, I guess I can understand that. You know, I mean, she had so many issues stemming from her parents, mostly her mother, that, I mean, what is the first thing that your parents give you? They give you the name. Mm-hmm. They give you your name. So I can see where she would want to cast that name aside and reclaim an identity for herself. By taking a new name, she was able to do that. Now, on her conversion to Islam in October of 2018, she adopted the name Shuhada, and sometime later, she also changed her surname from Devit to Sadakat. Sadakat? But Sadakat, S-A-D-A-Q-A-T. But she still continued to release her albums using the name Sinead O'Connor. So... This is the end of her debut album, and this album got so much critical acclaim, got her nominated for some Grammys. As you mentioned, Trey, a lot of airplay on MTV. But this was far from from the end for her, right? She went on to do her probably biggest album ever, her second album, which is I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got, and that came out in 1990. I didn't expect this to blow up like it did, and it ooh, it went stellar. I don't think she expected it to blow up the way that it did either. I don't believe anyone did. Trey, would you like us to play a song off of that album? I mean, how can we not play Nothing Compares to You? I mean, that's, that was the hit of the year, 1990. Some genius realized it was probably a good idea to release this a month before Valentine's Day. I see. I guess I didn't yeah. put two and two together. Somebody oh. in the A&R department went, you know what? Let's hold this to the middle of January. I know that she got asked a lot about that music video. And so the music video is mostly just her face and her singing to the camera. But 
there's a point where she tears up and she has a few tears rolling down her cheek. And I think people had asked her on more than one occasion, were those genuine tears? But go back and watch it again and look at where in the song she's crying. All of the flowers that you planted, mother, Mm -hmm. in the backyard. And she, she had to have been thinking of her mother there. Despite all of the abuse, you know, she called her mother a monster. I think deep down, she she really did love her mother, and all she wanted was her mother's love and approval. Yeah. And her mother was not capable of giving it. Well, she wasn't around to see this either. No, no, she wasn't. We have to mention this was pinned by Fritz. It was. And there's a clarifying, horrifying story in her book about when she met Prince. And I'm not going to go into the details because this is about her. This isn't about Prince. Well, he's another one I've heard that can be a bit of a jerk. So 1990 was really kind of a roller coaster year for her. Oh, man. The first big controversy happened in New Jersey, August 24th of 1990. This was kind of a setup. She was performing at the Garden State Arts Center. One of the, I guess, employees of the art center came to her in the dressing room before the show began and said, hey, do you want us to play the national anthem before the show? Oh, yeah, I've forgotten about this one. Yeah, and and she's like, no, no, that's okay. You know, she didn't think anything of it. But that employee then went and, and notified a few radio stations, and it suddenly became... Sinead O'Connor refuses to allow our national anthem to be played. Yeah. Think- and so that that's why I said it was a setup. I mean, because she didn't even think anything of it. You know, they said, well, do you want us to play the national anthem? No, that's okay. And her thinking was, and I understand this, well, that doesn't have anything to do with a rock concert. I've never been to a rock concert where they've played the Star Spangled Banner. I had neither. Show. What in the hell? Right. So... I mean, I could see it if it was a sporting event or something, you know. I mean, that's the kind of thing they do at, like, baseball games and stuff. But as a result of this, some radio stations started banning her songs. A New York State senator suggested boycotting her upcoming concert. And there was even an incident in a Beverly Hills grocery store where a meat department worker saw her shopping and got up in her face and started singing the Star Spangled Banner. So that was controversy number one. But the big controversy, Trey, was with that photo that she took from her mother's wall of Pope John Paul II. Oh, God. Yeah. So she was performing on Saturday Night Live on October 3rd, 1992. She has said in her memoir that she didn't know that she was going to do it until the time came for her to go on stage. She just felt that the time was right. So she sang an a cappella version of War by Bob Marley. And if you know anything about that song, the lyrics are actually taken from a speech that Emperor Haile Selassie of Ethiopia gave to the United Nations. So she sang it, and in rehearsal, I don't remember what they said. She had something different that she had torn up on stage. But Saturday Night Live being live... She pulled out her mother's photo of Pope John Paul II, and she said, fight 
the real enemy, and she tore up the picture of the Pope on national TV. She's got her banned from Saturday Night Live, but it just ended up blowing up. You know, we had Joe Pesci a few weeks later on SNL saying, you know, of course, Italian-American, so, you know, they love the Pope. Uh, I, you know, I would have slapped her in her face. A lot of DJs were, were really criticizing her for it. And I think that a lot of people didn't really understand where it was coming from. I think a lot of it, again, comes from the fact that, you know, this was her mother's photo, her mother's icon, and that to her, this was the symbol of all the abuse and all the repression that she had endured growing up and that others like her had endured. And also that there was child sexual abuse from clergy members that was being covered up. And of course, I think you and I talked about in a previous episode, it later turned out she was she was completely right. And and Pope John Paul actually had been covering up some of the allegations within the church. But at the time it was explosive and I think I, I read somewhere her father had said, well, now you're going to have to go to college because you've just completely derailed your career. And she was totally okay with that because, again, she did not want to be a famous singer. She did not want the spotlight. I mean, was it a little over the top? Yes. But I can understand where she was coming from. I actually saw a fist fight over this whole thing between a friend of mine and someone we went to high school with. And we really bumped into some opposing people when I'm talking out of a restaurant, this friend of mine. The other guy hit him first, and this friend of mine beat the living piss out of him and actually ended up putting him in the hospital. Wow. Well, 13 days later, Trey, there was another incident which you and I were talking about a few days ago, and that was at Madison Square Garden. Good, huh? And she was invited to sing during Bob Dylan's 30th anniversary concert. Now, keep in mind that Bob Dylan was her hero since she was a child and was the person that inspired her to start making music. So she was supposed to come out and sing the Bob Dylan song, I Believe in You, which is a fairly quiet song. And and she had arranged it with the band leader and whatever. They did the arrangement where it was going to be very quiet, almost a whisper. But when she came out, and she's wearing this beautiful turquoise blue tunic, if you look at the video on YouTube, about half of Madison Square Garden starts booing really loudly. And about the other half starts cheering. So you've got cheers and you've got jeers going on at the same time. It's really, really loud. And she goes into panic mode. And you can kind of see there's about 90 seconds where she's on stage where you you can tell she doesn't know what to do. And for a minute or two, I'm not sure the audience members aren't going to actually riot. They're clashing so badly already with their voices. How do I know what else might happen? I realize that if I start the song, I'm fucked because the vocal is so whispered. Both sides of the audience's battle are going to drown me out and I can't afford not to be heard. The booers will take it as a victory. 
So I literally screamed the biggest rage I could muster, the Bob Marley song, War, to which I tore up the Pope's picture. And then I almost get sick. And she is defiant. She is holding her chin up so high. She she is defying the crowd. I will be hurt. Chris Christopherson later wrote a song called Sister Sinead about her. Mm-hmm. Um, so 92 ended up just being a terrible, terrible year for her. I think it's but, safe to say this killed her career in America, unfortunately. But did it, though? I mean, because she still had, what, she have like 10 albums? Believe it or not, Trey, her next several albums all charted. Her third album, Am I Not Your Girl, went to number 27 in the U.S. Oh, well, I'll have to... Uni- I will have... Universal Mother, her fourth album, went to number 36. Faith and Courage went to number 55. There's actually only one of her albums that did not make the top 200 in the U.S., and that was her reggae album, Throw Down Your Arms, which, by the way, is really hard to find. I guess I'll have to stand corrected on that statement then. Well, But she never got the kind of airplay that she used to. You're correct. She was no longer the media darling. And I think, you know, we talk a lot in 2023 about cancel culture. She was a victim of quote-unquote cancel culture long before... Yeah, you know, you got a good point there. It didn't cross my mind reading about that as well. Well, I mean, if you think about it, she is everything that we are taught that women should not be. She did not style herself to be attractive to men. The shaved head, I think she was absolutely freaking gorgeous, and I think even more beautiful with the shaved head. But that was intimidating to people. She spoke truth to power, and that was intimidating to people, and she would not be silenced. And as women, we're often taught to look pretty and shut up, and she refused to do that. That's why I, I, I consider her so important, and, you know... I think part of the reason that her death has hit me so hard is because I see so many similarities between me and her. And I'm I not saying that, that to, sound, to sound arrogant. So, I mean, we both got pregnant at 20 and, and had our first child at a young age. We were both raised Catholic. We both are very outspoken. Now, granted, she had a much bigger platform and a much wider audience. We both defy gender stereotypes. And... We both have had a bit of a history of depression. This actually first came about that, at least that I know of, because obviously it was a lifelong struggle for her. You know, and God, after everything that she went through as a child, no wonder. No wonder that she was struggling with depression and with mental illness. Then there was, and this is another thing that she and I have in common, is that we both lost our son. Her son, Shane, this was her third child. And in January of last year, 2022, Shane died by his own hand. Sinead tweeted, been living as undead night creature since. He was the love of my life, the lamp of my soul. We were one soul and two halves. 
He was the only person who ever loved me unconditionally. I am lost in the bardo without him. Yeah, as you, as you mentioned earlier, Trey, we don't know what her cause of death was. We don't know that uh, the coroner's inquest is still pending or whatever. The family hasn't released any statements. It could have been suicide. You know, given I've, her I've, mental state. I felt like it most likely was. You know, I, I mean, I will feel really bad saying that if it turns out not to be. But another reason this hits me so hard is because when my son died, I very nearly self-destructed too. And I was suicidal. And I felt like I couldn't go on either. But somehow I made it through. And it looks like she didn't. And I think that's part of the reason that this hits me so hard is because, I mean, God, that could have been me, you know? Yeah. So, do you have anything else that you want to say before we we bring this to an end? Lori, I think you covered this amazingly. And th- th- Thank th- you. It's almost like a, I, there's so much I didn't know. Yeah, well, she was a very complicated person. And, you know, there has been an outpouring of love and support since she passed away. Bono was at her funeral. Bob Geldof was at her funeral. You know, Morrissey put out a statement, and I thought, damn, if he didn't just hit it right on the head. It was something to the effect of all of you people that are now voicing your love and admiration and support, where the fuck were you when she was alive, when she needed you? She was kind of persona non grata after some of the things that she had done, and and a lot of people didn't. At least a lot of celebrities maybe didn't want to be associated with her, which is really sad. And you also, you know, you get to realize we only know these people through the public persona with the media tellers. She, we don't know that nobody reached out to her. That's true. We don't know that. That's true. You're absolutely correct. Thank you for pointing that out. And we don't know what's coming. Bono might come out and say, you know, uh, God knows who could have tried calling her just she could have been a jerk of a human being and shunned it all. And, you know, they always say you have to want to help yourself to be helped. And again, we don't know. We're just speculating. We don't know what her cause of death was. It may have been, you know, like a brain hemorrhage or something. It may have been. It could have just had a stroke in her sleep, right? Correct. Correct. And, you know, I hope that she finds peace now. You know, I hope that I hope that she's reunited with Shane with her loved ones and that she's at peace. Her imam, Dr. Umar Al-Qadri, delivered the eulogy at her funeral the other day, and he said, gifted with a voice that moved a generation of young people, she could reduce listeners to tears by her otherworldly resonance. Sinead's voice carried with it an undertone of hope of finding one's way home. Boy, you know, I hope she's finding her way home. Um, The last thing I want to say was just a quote that I found from her. And she was talking about why she, why music was so important to her. And she said, perhaps we all need a bit of love and affection that we didn't get anywhere else, but we get by making music. So, Trey... 
I'd like to close off this episode. We don't normally play a full song by an artist for copyright reasons, but in the spirit of Sinead and, you know, defying authority, I'd really like to end this episode with a song that she did on her Universal Mother album. It's called Thank You for Hearing Me. And she wrote it for Peter Gabriel after they broke up. But it's more than that. It's it's really a beautiful, very touching song. And I think it's an appropriate note to end this episode on. All right. So, everybody, thank you for listening. And what are we into next? I think we're going to do the Joshua Tree, aren't okay, we? Okay, I'm excited for this one. Yeah, so in two weeks, we're going to wrap up 1987 with a track-by-track deep dive of her fellow Irishman, U2. So uh, it's a goodbye from me. Good night, everybody. Sister Sinead, rest in power. Thank you for hearing me. 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 Thank you for loving.
with me.